0: to a very, very successful week. It's been so gratifying.
1: Yeah, it was really good, like on a number of fronts. Three
0: days in a row, decisions coming out. And this is an interesting thing. When we go to trial, um, quite often people have to wait for a a month or sometimes longer to get their decision. And a lot of people don't realize that when we're going to trial. They think, okay, this is it. And it's like, no, you're going to have to wait. And so um, with these, uh, they call it reserving their decision. And, uh, and usually it involves written reasons. But uh, we ended up with three uh, in a row. And three acquittals all in a row.
1: Yeah, it was very satisfying. Fantastic. Um, so and, and, and part of this comes back to when we were doing some case studies. And, and we promised those who you know, religiously follow our podcast that we'd come back. So we're going to talk probably about two, uh, one of which is a, r- a really good one. But the first one we're going to talk about was that case where you and I were incensed. It was coming out of a high conflict divorce. Mm-hmm. Our client was charged with nine counts of varying sexual offenses involving his daughter, um, assault charges involving his daughter and son, and an assault charge with like multiple elements on his soon-to-be ex-wife, mm. all coming uh, at, at the time of separation.
0: Which is, it involves parental alienation, which we've kind of um, talked about a little bit in the past, but uh, there, there was clear evidence in this case that that uh, one of the parents had poisoned the children against the other one.
1: Yeah, and just let's remind everybody, because you and I haven't run a case where, even though the judge said, you know, the judge did a whole paragraph and a whole section on parental alienation, not endorsing my my submissions in that regard, but that's fine. I mean, the judge, I thought, did a very good job in, in, in this um, decision. But this was one of the most palpable um, explicit cases we've ever had with the crossover of parental alienation into a criminal law case. So just do a couple of highlights and then and then we'll talk about it.
0: Well, one of the main focuses in the decision, um, which is something that, that we had brought to the attention of the judge, was that th- there were two children involved that, you know, there were allegations um, regarding each one. And uh, the youngest one was only five at the time of um, the statement that was given to police. And he was so sweet. Everybody in the court was laughing. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, it was very clear that he was um, very honest. He had no agenda. And um, but the problem was that, and, and thankfully, he he made it clear when he was giving his evidence that his mother had reminded him of what he should be remembering. And that became a critical point because there was uh, there was a lot of evidence that the mother had had spoken in quite a bit of detail with the kids and with the older child for quite a few months prior to the allegations being made, that there had been conversations going on. And one of the cutest things from the, from this little boy was, he said, his, his mother asked, her, are you going to live with me forever? And then I, I said to her, I don't know, because when I get older, I might have other plans. <laughs> it was yeah. adorable. It was like, but the things, you know, and that's, that, that was... That's one of the things with children is that, um, you know, the, the cutest things come out of their mouths, and, and this type of a thing is where you can really see this is the innocence of the, of the testimony. But at the same time, he was really clear that, um, when confronted about not having said certain things in his police statement, he was like, well, I didn't remember that until my mom reminded me of what to remember.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know I had those memories. So let's. Let's sort of put this all into context because I think it's important for people who who watch and have asked us questions. So this again, as Diana points out, there was various portions of evidence that was really, really uh, aggravating in the sense of now tainting or collusion with witnesses. And this was more of a tainting, although there is right. some collusion. So one major factor was in the fall Of 2020, about three to four months prior to our client being charged, it was very clear that the mother had been speaking to the daughter um, and within earshot of the son of saying things, Will you help me get sole custody of you and your brother because I can't live without you? Mm -hmm. And talking to the daughter in earshot of the young son about all the bad things that our client had done and reinforcing all of this negativity about the father, our client, which had gone on for several months prior to being charged. Two, that prior to giving the statement, they all went there together and it's pretty clear that there was discussions in the car about what the allegations were. And then three, on the way to court, For the first day of testimony, the uh, complainant mother, wife of of our client, had specifically talked in the car, both children are there, about aspects of evidence, and in this case we know very well, and it came out very clearly in cross-examination, that this young boy was told about memories that he did not have, memories not only about his own allegation um, but memories related to supporting his sister's allegation of one of them of being choked, where he clearly never saw that
0: he was very clear in his police
1: statement that he never that it was just words that were being used, but she had specifically told him to remember that, and that's what came out and then when cross examined on it, it's again that was a memory or a vision or something he observed that was implanted right and so that's an important point because we've talked about this before
0: uh, and um, and I think it's a a really important thing to to lay out there's a difference between credibility and reliability so somebody can be telling the truth but their memories aren't reliable for a variety of reasons in this case it's because they were infected by somebody telling them uh, oh you know you you know don't forget to remember this thing and I would say that with with the the son the yeah. son
1: was not reliable because of the implanting of memories.
0: Mm-hmm. But, you know, as he was saying it, he wasn't just saying, oh, my mom told me to say this. Like He had, he had decided that that was probably what he saw. Like he, he became very confused.
1: Right, and even on his own allegations, he admitted to me in cross-examination that he may have been wrong about dates or what happened to him. But the daughter, if you remember, the other sort of additional element that I want to talk about is the daughter in her statement, had asked a police officer about her brother's statement and said that he could be lying because he still loves our dad. Mm-hmm. And that was an incredibly interesting and and, and I guess um, demonstrative comment showing her animus and her influence over the evidence, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Because why on earth would she ever ask that about her little brother Except that she wanted to control the narrative to show that the father was essentially guilty of all this stuff that she had said so with her based on all this sort of tainting i would say that she had both reliability and significant credibility issues because i saw her as intentionally not wanting to tell the truth yeah so this was um those were sort of four anchors of where there was very significant influence very palpable influence towards alienating the children from the father, producing evidence of a criminal nature to get him charged and then ultimately to try and get him convicted, that the court did a very good job to navigate because as we had said in that previous episode, how on earth do you ever convict when, when the mother complainant had been influencing the children and when I gave her the opportunity to tell the truth in cross-examination, what'd she do, Diana? <laughs> 100% denied. Looked at me like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. I have no clue. I just told them to tell the truth. Just to tell the truth. <laughs> you know, so that type of a lie mm-hmm. to a court under oath is incredibly damaging to credibility and infects every single other piece of evidence of the people she has influenced. And and what was great about the ruling, and there's, you know, look, I, I can't expect to get everything in a ruling, but her client was found not guilty on all nine counts. Mm -hmm. But the judge did a very good job of going through the issues of reliability and credibility and emphasizing, you know, there is no presumption that a witness is telling the truth. If this were so and was applied to crown witnesses, it would be contrary to the presumption of innocence and the presumption of reasonable doubt. But what's important about this is there's no presumption that a witness is telling the truth. It would be contrary to the presumption of innocence. It's much like how we say, You know all this hashtag believe all this other stuff that i'm seeing now and the reason we're talking about this a little bit more is i'm seeing a bit of a trend in decisions that we're getting Mm -hmm. where the courts i think are finally getting their feet underneath them with the changes and are finding a way to stay true to the presumption of innocence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt because the judge in this case went through great detail the high watermark or the benchmark for uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt and went through the case law, that I think they're trying to find a balance where they're referring to certain things and speaking to the complainants, but also saying we need to protect against wrongful convictions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not in every case, but we're starting to see this trend. I, I, we are. Yeah. And, you know, there there was a big push for a while to... Well, there was a big push.
0: There, there was um, a number of uh, high-profile cases that were exploited I think in the media where judges were accused of rape mess and it became a point of concern for judges that if they if they didn't believe I I feel that they were they were afraid to um, to acquit
1: and find themselves in a court of appeal being accused of rape mess yeah 100 percent I think there is so much of an onslaught of this and so much fear about it and and the way we tried to overcome that is by doing written submissions to a judge so that we can give them all of the accurate case law, all the accurate inferences that can be drawn, avoiding myth-based reasoning, and that helps them. And I think that type of written advocacy is incredibly powerful when we're defending cases. But I really do believe they're getting their footing on this basis. And they keep referring to that decision of Justice Malloy. I've seen this now yeah. in two of the back-to-back decisions that we had where our clients were acquitted. I think it's just something important to talk about. but. But I'm going to say this, even though the client was acquitted um, and there was findings that cast real significant doubt on the reliability and credibility of the children, um, it certainly doesn't shine well on the complainant uh, wife. There still is an overall reluctance sometimes to call a spade a spade.
0: Yeah, I know. And that's, that's an interesting point because the majority of acquittals, they say, they can't be sure what happened. They're they're hesitant to say that they find the person, uh, you know, that, that a complainant lied. Yeah. And we have another case that was really
1: great that <laughs> we can contrast. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about that in a second. But I want to talk about Nisnik because we've mentioned it before in previous episodes, which is the one with those police officers who were charging was Justice Malloy. and And there's a lot about that judgment that we don't necessarily endorse. But there are certain paragraphs of that decision now that are being repeated By judges in their written decisions sending a clear message to complainants about why the system is the way it is Mm -hmm. i just find it very interesting it's this is a superior court judge which is now being quoted a lot by other judges to try and get to try and smooth it over if i can say it that way well it was really nicely worded and it's well worded what i what i liked about it um was that she
0: addressed the um sort of hashtag believe Yes. um demand because there was a demand that you know that was uh, so what she says is uh although the slogan believe the victim has become popularized of late it has no place in a criminal trial to approach a trial with the assumption that the complainant is telling the truth is the equivalent of imposing a presumption of guilt on the person accused of sexual assault and then placing a burden on him to prove his innocence that is antithetical to the fundamental principles of justice enshrined in our constitution and the values underlying our free and democratic society and you know that's it's so important and it's you know especially important when somebody's facing incarceration and the loss of their liberty it still concerns me that hashtag believe is an operating principle in uh, on social media when people don't get fair trials and uh their lives can be equally destroyed, but but there is a significant difference when you're looking at incarcerating somebody.
1: There is, and 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 you know, in both these decisions that we had last week or the week before, where the judges carefully wrote, um, explaining what's at stake here is liberty, what's at stake is a criminal conviction, and it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And they, and, and again, they emphasized, you know, there's no automatic belief of any witness. And the the other thing was paragraph sixteen, which they brought up, which I I, I I handed to Justice Molloy to put out there because I think it it's very important, and it gets lost. And and I think this will flow into another podcast we're going to do later about these pilot projects with these courts to try and right. enhance convictions. But it's really important. If I can just read from this for a second, it's sometimes said that the application of these principles is unfair to complainants in sexual assault cases that judges are improperly dubious of the testimony of complainants and that the system is tilted in favor of the accused. In my opinion, those critics fail to understand the purpose of a sexual assault trial, which is to determine whether or not a criminal offense has been committed. It is essential that the rights of the complainant be respected in that process and the decisions not be based on outmoded or stereotypical ideas about how victims of assault will or will not behave. However. The focus of a criminal trial is not the vindication of a complainant. The focus must always be on whether the alleged offense has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's more to this. But that's very strong language. Mm -hmm. Clearly saying there's a purpose to this criminal justice process. And whether it's a sexual assault case or something else, the eye must be on the ball as to whether a criminal offense has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's not about vindication of a complainant's allegation.
0: Yeah, and you know, the interesting thing is this was a high profile case. So, you know, and it's pretty clear from the yeah. way that was written with the the believe the victim paragraph and everything that um, she knew that her reasons were going to be gone through with a fine tooth comb by advocates who were, who love to say the system's broken and it fails victims and all right. this other stuff. So, and I think that's why it was so strongly worded. And you know, You've got to give a lot of credit to, to judges who are subjected to, I think, sometimes unfair criticism because um, when they're attacked by advocacy, advocacy groups who say, oh, this decision was wrong and, you know, they're not allowed to respond. They can't. No. And there's no spokesperson to defend them. So but, but, but she did a
1: great job. She did a great job. And what this paragraph has done now is, I think, has allowed... Other judges, because literally these paragraphs were quoted in two of these decisions we've had. And we're seeing this trend now. Allow judges to say, this is what the criminal trial is about. And we get that complainants need to be treated properly and we can't have myth-based reasoning. But you've got to remember what this criminal trial is about. Mm -hmm. And I find this refreshing now that I'm seeing this repeated. Whether it's to appease or explain to an audience... To the public, to a complainant or not, I think it is a good indication, based upon what we're seeing now, that there's starting to be a recalibration, a balancing. Whereas I know a couple of years ago, when we started this podcast, we were pretty worried, mm-hmm. and we should still worry because we'll talk about it in another podcast something that's pretty scary. But right now, I think this has been pretty powerful. But you know, how often, you know, we have not guilty here. How often is it that you get a judge actually saying i believe the accused i do not believe the complainant and then in essence finding somebody factually innocent
0: i know and so there is a difference between saying that um uh, you must acquit because you know the the evidence wasn't strong enough to uh, to eliminate a reasonable doubt and right? so you're saying i don't really know what happened and and then a finding that the complainant is not being truthful yeah and that was that was a word uh, that was used in one of our decisions that we had this week so um, and, and it was really nice we, one of the nicest things is we managed to get through the evidence so quickly that we were able to get a decision without having to wait yeah so um, it was really good it was a client. really quick decision and it, and it was fairly easy to come to the conclusion <laughs> once well, I, I thought once it was, the cross-examination was completed, yeah, I thought it, it was became pretty really obvious. clear that, that there was obvious lies going on.
1: But this, this is really important. So, you know, this was like a weird situation. It wasn't like these people really... Our client was a service individual a technician who went into a certain type of office to repair stuff. There was a receptionist there, and the receptionist was the complainant and alleged that our client had touched her inappropriately. And then what we discovered and we were able to cross-examine on was that, in fact, she had damaged certain equipment. And he was going to have to tell the owner of the company, it's expensive, we're going to have to repair it, it's not going to be under warranty anymore. And then all of a sudden, they have an argument, like she says, you're trying to get me fired. And then he winds up getting charged with sexual assault. And it's very important for us to say that a not guilty verdict is a not guilty verdict. You know, under the law, everybody is, you're not guilty. But judges, and we've said this before, we've talked about qualified acquittals where judges will still say in a judgment, you know, on a balance of probability, you know, maybe they would be found guilty, but that's not the standard. Um, They might have done this, but on proof beyond a reasonable doubt, I can't find it. You know, I find those to be qualified acquittals, but then every so often you get a judge who's strong, sees the facts for what they are, and is not frightened to say, no, I absolutely do not believe what the complainant says. In fact, I find that she wasn't telling the truth, and, and I absolutely believe the accused. And in our case, it was, Absolutely obvious. After cross examination, she was lying. One of my favorite moments was when, uh, like, we're talking about really um,
0: complicated machinery that yeah. that was being repaired. You're just like uh, saying to the receptionist because she's talking about, you know, trying to get a screwdriver. Why did you have a screwdriver? You're a receptionist. <laughs> and and then she tries to claim that that a very highly trained repairman told her to try and repair it herself if, if it got damaged, and then. But then there was also evidence that he had clearly said on that specific day, call this other person because this machinery is under warranty. They're the
1: ones who should be fixing
0: it. Yeah, so is that kind of a thing. It would be like, she's acknowledged, he told her it's under warranty, you should be getting it you know, fixed yeah. under warranty, and then simultaneously claiming that he told her, she knows nothing about this machinery whatsoever, oh, just go get a screwdriver and try to fix it yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah, makes no sense whatsoever. And and she clearly was insisting while he was there to go get a screwdriver to try and close up this area where, in fact, damage had been caused. So it was really really stupid. It was just dumb, right? But I, the reason we bring it up is two reasons. One, you know the judge who was a very, very, very good judge, you know essentially found her client factually innocent. But two, for all those who suggest that people don't lie about sexual assault allegations have got it wrong. Like this was like, this was like right out there for everybody in the courtroom to go, everybody, the court reporters, the court clerk, they all thought that she was lying. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, you will still get this propaganda that, you know, complainants won't lie about sexual assault allegations. And it just unfolded in front of our eyes and ears in a courtroom in Toronto. And it was absolutely obvious to everybody and I still find it so shocking that, you know, that they'll push this bullshit data about low conviction rates and that there's, you know, the fact that, that somebody would lie about an allegation of sexual assault is is rare or you know statistically so low it's just it's not a reality it's a myth remember we discussed that once
0: every every motive to lie even though there are known motives to lie um,
1: that uh, every motive to lie is apparently a rape myth yeah I mean I, I, I remain it's ridiculous it, it, it's you know why can't we get to the place where we go
0: people lie well you know what you know what annoys me too is that um, that's one of the first questions why would they lie but that's something that the defense doesn't have to. They don't. We don't have to prove
1: motive. Absolutely not. We do in many cases. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it and it almost seems in some cases, frankly, where we we're under the gun to go, we almost feel compelled to have to address that issue because of the overall concern that we have of people still thinking that, whether it's a jury or a judge, because of this very, you know, I think propaganda based on flawed anecdotal evidence that people don't lie, they do. I mean, it may not be, um, you know, 50%, it may not be 40%, but people do lie. Men and women lie. People make false allegations. They do it for hidden agendas. They do it for all sorts of reasons. That's just a sad fact. Yeah, sometimes they, you know, it's the top second reason people
0: lie when asked. They don't even know. I know, there was that study. Yeah, I know. so they don't even know why they do it sometimes. But I think it is a problem, too, in terms of these cases proceeding all the way through the, the criminal justice system, which is overwhelmed. And uh, we could get into that, too, how often there's not enough judges available. Yeah. But, well, uh, the system needs to be funded. But I think people feel trapped into it that they're, you know, when, as, as soon as a statement is made, then
1: then they think they have to just stick with it and follow through. But it, it's, you know, a, again, I, I think what has to happen at some point, because if... if If things start to develop more where where there continues to be this uh, push for specialized courts, and again, we're going to talk about that later on, Um, and and, and the fact that rates are really low, there has to start to be some real academic, rigorous um, studies done of false accusations. And how you are able to determine that uh, through review of cases and interview of complainants and witnesses and accused i think there needs to be some academic rigor now applied to that so that we have some other source or narrative to get out there because i think we have to be you know again very careful about what dangerous path we go down where we see this play out right in front of us just in the last so it's it's made, in the last five months we've had at least 10 trials i can think of or cases where it's absolutely clear to us they're fabricated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely clear. And, you know, even in this case where, where we, where was the nine count information with our client on the parental alienation, there's a large aspect of that that was just, it was clear it's a fabrication. Mm-hmm. I think it's time that, you know, somebody steps up. I mean, we, we, you know, we're not in, we're not in that business, but I, you know, I'd it'd be great if somehow we could participate. That we'd start to have some academic studies of this. Well, the problem is the methodology. So you can work. We've we
0: kind of mentioned this before too, but uh, when they talk about statistics, and, and I always hate when people um, approach the justice system in terms of trying to um, deal with it in numbers, right? Percentages of convictions or how many how many rapists they think get away with it. A case is never about numbers. It's about individuals and who are these people, and. Um, but the some of the studies that have been done that are being used to to craft new legislation in, in one case that was found seventy percent of the so-called victims didn't even agree that they were sexually assaulted, is the
1: activist deciding whether or not they were sexually assaulted. right. So why can't why can't you take a selection of transcripts of a thousand trials and start to like certainly we could provide a lot of transcripts, and you could start to go through them with a panel of five. Not, you know, you'd have to be very careful as to who you select to be on that panel to start reviewing them. You could easily tease out yeah. false evidence, yeah, just as much as you could easily tease out, you know, pretty solid, established prosecutorial facts. There's no interest in that whatsoever, there's no money for that, there's no politician willing to even try that mm-hmm. when you know. Again, the ramifications of somebody being accused is life altering and being convicted is life altering. And, and, you know, we've seen tragedies result to people who've been convicted and they feel there's no way out of it. I'm yeah. not gonna talk about it, but bad things happen. People commit yeah. suicide. Yeah. And it uh, wasn't our client, but we know of a couple of cases. And this is serious shit, which I think there needs to be a much more balanced approach as to where we're going now exactly all right well thank you for viewing and if you like what we're talking about um like share subscribe hit notification i'm getting better You're getting really good at this it only took me like two and a half years eh and so leave comments
0: because we do read the comments
1: yeah and you know we've been having really great questions when when they're um when they go live and we have the live chat but keep sending us questions and we really want this was one where people had said please come back to this case study um And I think we're going to visit more of this. We're going to do a few more, but thank you very much for viewing. Good night.
0: Good night.